Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Today's podcast is from a sermon I delivered on the book of Acts. I hope you enjoy. Have your Bibles, open them up to page 772. In your pew Bibles, Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at several different stories in the book of Acts. And I hope you've figured out the theme of the message, the theme of the service already by now. <clears throat> the uh, Babylon Bee re- uh, reported an incident that when a new family moved in next door to a local Christian believer named James Benson, the faithful Christian knew right away that God had placed them in his life for a reason. That God had had these people move next door to him for a reason, and that is so that he could pray that God would send someone else to share the Christian faith with them. Claiming that the Lord had placed a burden on his heart, that the Maloof family would see the light of of God's grace in the gospel, Benson set out to work immediately on his new God-given mission, to ask the Lord to pass the responsibility to somebody else. I just pray, Lord, that you would bring someone into this family's life, Lord. Place a Christian near them, perhaps a next-door neighbor or something, Benson passionately prayed Wednesday morning in fulfillment of the Almighty's call on his life. Here I am, Lord. Send someone, he added. Emotion creeping into his voice, his heart was touched by the need of his family to hear the gospel. There are no coincidences, Benson told reporters Wednesday. God put this family in my life so that I could beg him to place someone near to them who would actually step out and witness to them and about the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. If you haven't figured out that was satire, but I think that's so true often for many of our lives. The book of Acts, we noted a number of weeks ago, which apparently you're excited to hear is going to end today, but that's whatever. Well, we, we noted a number of weeks ago, begins with Jesus rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And it says in Acts 1-3 1, 1, that Jesus was preaching to them about the kingdom of God. The book of Acts then ends in chapter 28 with Paul being in a, in a, in a, in a, in a rented house, a, a prison, a house prison. And he was preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's the very last verse, Acts 28, I think it's verse 31. It begins with Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God to the disciples, and it ends with Paul in Rome talking about the kingdom of God. And this is an ancient author's way of framing a document or a section, in this case the whole book, telling you what it's about. Remember, they don't have chapter breaks in their Bibles because they read it aloud. Everyone doesn't have a Bible in their hands. Someone's reading it. And when they read it, they have to have some way for the hearers to clue in. We have paragraph breaks and chapter breaks and divisions and headings and and all those things. We see in in front of us the beginning and ending and, and, and the key themes. They have to hear it. So the author would frame a section with a, with a statement, a phrase, or something like that, and then they would hear it again. They go, "Oh, this is what the book's about. It's about the kingdom of God. The whole book is about the kingdom of God." Acts chapter three now. Uh, begins with a story and says this, verse 1. Uh, one day, Peter and John, two of the twelve apostles, were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. 
Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now over in chapter 4, by the way, the story kind of continues. Verse 22 it says, The man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. If we look at the story carefully, it says he was lame from birth. He was laid at the temple gates every single day, and he was 40 years old. If that's the case, by the way, then, folks, then I dare say he had to have run into a man whom we all know very, very well. He had to have seen Jesus. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a number of different occasions over a period of three and a half years. We know he went in and out of Jerusalem. We know when he was a baby, his parents took him to Jerusalem. We know when he was 12, he was in Jerusalem. And it asks, and it begs the question, why did Jesus never heal this man? Why did he never heal him? And maybe one of the answers is because he was saving the deed for Peter and John. Peter and John, I want you to heal them. Heal this man. And there might be a reason why. Let's go to chapter 8 now and look at another story. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, who's one of the apostles, go south of the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the, of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the Spirit of the Lord told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Now the story might sound a little strange here, let me stop for just a moment. But Ethiopians have claimed for hundreds of years that they are Jews. Uh, the Queen of Sheba, the, the book of 1 Kings records, had visited Jerusalem and became one of the wives of Solomon. The Ethiopians claimed that the Queen of Sheba got pregnant from Solomon and therefore all of her offspring, therefore many Ethiopians, are Jews. In fact, if you go to Israel today, there are Ethiopian Israelites. So they claim to be Jewish. So it's not surprising that this Jewish man, this Ethiopian man, is traveling to Jerusalem to worship. He had probably brought an offering. He was in charge of the treasury. So he probably had brought an offering to, to the temple in Jerusalem. And now he's on his way back to Ethiopia, back down south uh, to, the, to Africa. Let's continue the story. Verse 30. Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture that the eunuch was reading. It's Isaiah 53. It says, He was led like a, a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open its mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Verse 34, the, the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet speaking about? Himself? Or someone else. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. 
Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Verse 39, when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again. But it went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 might be one of the most significant chapters in the Old Testament that clearly, and I'll put clearly in quotes here, indicates Jesus and what he did. He suffered crucifixion. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before a shear is a son, so he did not open his mouth. It's a description of the crucifixion in the words of Isaiah about 600 years before Jesus. And so this man's reading like, I don't know what this is talking about. Is, this, is the Isaiah talking about himself or about somebody else? The Jewish people at the time, by the way, thought that Isaiah was talking about them, the Israelites. That we are going to suffer and eventually bring about the redemption of the nation. But it says in the passage that it was for our iniquities that he suffers. That, that he himself was innocent. And so Philip begins to explain, okay, here's what's happening. Jesus was born Jewish, but, but he was innocent and he was God in the human flesh and he came and he suffered and died for us and then he died and rose again and then he appeared to many of us. And we've been out preaching the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem and others elsewhere and we were told to, to baptize those who repent in the name of Jesus. So the man says, like, hey, there's some water. I'm, I, I, this, this is great. I'm in. And the man's, uh, man is uh, baptized. Now imagine if Philip were like us. Philip, I want you to go to that chariot. Sorry, I got a meeting at 3 o'clock. So, you know, Lord, I'd love to do that, but I got to get my shopping done. Right? I'm tired. I don't have time. My, my favorite show's coming on in half an hour, and I forgot to set my DVR. You all know what, what I'm talking about. But Philip goes. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, who we saw in the video, who later becomes known as Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and the way is a name for the early Christian community. They weren't called Christians yet, they were called followers of the way. So if he found anyone who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when, his, when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, uh, answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the first two stories that we read... Peter and John, and the next story about Philip, you know, these are prominent leaders in the church. So it's easy to read those stories as though, oh, that's God calling this person. That's God calling the pastor. That's God calling this person. God calling, but God's not calling me. And then we find the story of a man named Ananias, who's just an average follower of Jesus in the city of Damascus. The story is the conversion of a man named Paul, or, or Saul. Saul's persecuting Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus to have them brought back to Jerusalem because the Christians have fled from Jerusalem to Damascus. He wants to bring them back to Jerusalem, have them extradited, so they can face charges, religious charges, treason against the, the Jewish religion, blasphemy. Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? I'm not, he knows it's the Lord, but he's convinced that he's not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting, or he's not persecuting the Lord. He's persecuting the followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom whom you're persecuting. And Paul goes, oh boy. He finally realizes that the Lord is none other than Jesus. Now, oftentimes we might ask the trivia question, you know, when was the apostle Paul converted? And one of the answers that people throw out is, Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. And the answer is no, he's not converted on the road to Damascus. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. And he's blinded for three days. And blindness is never associated with conversion. It's the opposite of conversion. Saul is converted in Damascus when Ananias comes and lays hands on him. And the scales fell from his eyes, and now he sees that's salvation. That's conversion. That's Paul becoming a Christian. And it's because Ananias does so. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we see a pattern in how God does his work. I said a number of weeks ago when we started started the study of the book of Acts that, you know, it would have been, in my opinion... Uh, you know, a lot better if Jesus would have just stuck around and done the job himself. And we would have just kind of like followed. When he multiplies the bread, we'll, we'll just clean up, we'll clean up all the extra breadcrumbs. Right? Well, when, he, you know, when he converts the woman who has a bleeding problem, you know, we'll provide her the pastoral counseling that she needs now. We'll teach the classes to help them understand more fully the, the doctrines of the church. and we'll, we'll, we'll be there to serve. But Jesus, you just go do the stuff you do. And we'll follow you. You lead the masses. You preach the sermons. We'll do all the after work. And Jesus says, no, I'm out of here. You guys take over. And we're like, you know, you don't understand. We're not really very good at this. We mess up a lot. We're afraid. Look at Ananias. Uh, Lord, as if he's got to inform Jesus of something that he didn't know. 
uh, do you know that that Paul guy you're sending me to or Saul, he's here to kill people like me? Just to get, you, 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 I, I know you're really busy being God and all that, but maybe you, like, you overlook something. You want me to go lay hands on Saul, I think you mean somebody else because that guy wants to kill me. He was afraid. He was fearful. He was skeptical. He questioned. He didn't want to go. But then we noted that instead of Jesus doing it this way, where he's going to go out and we just kind of follow in, the, in his wake and clean up all the mess and do all the pastoral care and stuff after, after the fact, Jesus decides to take off and leave, and then he sends the Spirit of God and fills every one of us who believes. And you'll receive power, it says in the Gospel of John, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Acts chapter 1. Oh. You're going to empower us to go out and do what Jesus did. All right. And the benefit of that, by the way, now means you don't have just one minister. You've got thousands and tens of thousands and soon millions and soon billions of people doing the ministry of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the nations. It's actually a brilliant plan. We kind of wonder, you know, about our own capabilities at times. God raises up others, and it multiplies the effectiveness of the kingdom and the effectiveness of the work. This is the way that God does it. He chooses to use us to do the work of his kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, or we're not asking God, we're not giving him permission to do his work. We're saying, here I am, I'm available. Use me. Here I am. Send me. One of the benefits of this is that God uses people because coming to Christ is to join a community. When people come to Christ, they join the community of God's people. Imagine if Paul were a Christian all by himself. And no other Christian, you know, Jesus appears to him, Saul, I'm Jesus, you know, you need to follow me. Paul's like, okay, cool, I'm in. But he has no attachment to a Christian community right now. If Jesus would have healed the crippled man at the temple gate, he might not have had a connection with the early Christians, with Peter and John that he has. And the Ethiopian goes back to Ethiopia, but I know Philip. Uh, I, I not only understand the scriptures, and what, but, but I've got, I have relationships with the people in Jerusalem and with the leaders of the church. And they join a community. And they're no longer just an outcast, but now they're insiders. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 26. I'll bring it up on the screen. Referring to Paul, it says, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple of Jesus. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. You see, it's the relationships that Paul has that are vital for his trust. He's opposed everywhere he goes. The Jews consider him a traitor. The Christians are uncertain about him. Acts chapter 9, verse 20, the very next verse. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. Paul needed a community. A place where he can go for support, for encouragement, for help, 
to be equipped, to be strengthened, to serve. Every once in a while you hear people say, I don't need church. I don't, I don't need church. Really? And this idea that we accept Jesus as our personal Savior and then I'm good to go. I've accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I get to go to heaven when I die. I'm done. I'm good. I don't need church. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we become brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty. In Christ Jesus, we become a community. And when we become a community, we need each other. God's intention, by the way, was it was not good for man to be alone. I mean, just look at the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve. It was not good for man to be alone. The idea of a solo Christian is just a foreign concept to the Bible, to to the way God created it and what God intended. We were created for community. We sang the song earlier about the Trinity. God is Father. I believe in God the the Father and God the Son. I don't remember the words, Courtney knows them. And in the Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. Three in one. God himself exists as a community. And he created us to be in community. It's not good for man to be alone. Sometimes when people say, I don't need church, first off, obviously, that's really bad theology. But my next response is, but does the church need you? Because you see, it's all about self. If the, uh, I don't need church, it's about self. I'm good to go. I get to go to heaven when I die. But but the nature of becoming a Christian is that we lay down our lives for the sake of Christ and the sake of one another. It's the, the essence, the essential principle of being a Christian is love. And love is not self seeking. Love seeks the interests of others. To say, I don't need church, is to not love the church. So maybe you don't need church, but maybe the church needs you. So how do we do this? Well, I would say this. If the primary feature of God's people is love, then first off, we must be in community. We cannot love if there's no one to love. But maybe you need to be Philip to somebody. Maybe God's calling you to be Ananias. Or Priscilla. Or Peter and John. When you get to the end of the book of Acts, and take this out earlier, sorry about that. Hope it's in here. Pastor didn't bring his Bible to church. Yes, I did. I mentioned this to you a number of weeks ago as well, that at the end of the book of Acts in my Bible, it says, just kidding. Paul was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And then I wrote, dot, 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 to be continued. The Bible might be a completed book, but the story of the church is not a completed story. The work of the kingdom is not over. It's still going. We pray every day, Lord, thy kingdom come, like now. End the story. But until he does, we're called to be the ministers of God's kingdom. Now, let me also explain this. There are two kingdoms according to the scriptures. There's the kingdom of the world and there's the kingdom of God. And this might take a long time to describe, so I'm just going to be brief now. But the kingdom of God is the kingdom that God, where God is the Lord. Where in God's kingdom, the blind receive sight, 
The, the lame will walk again, the, the deaf will hear, and the poor will have the good news preached to them. In the kingdom of God, eventually there'll be no more death because there'll be resurrection into eternal life. In the kingdom of God, we will eternally dwell in God's presence and there will be no more hunger, no more thirst. In the meantime, we are to proclaim the goodness of the kingdom to the world. And the kingdom of God coexists at the present time with also the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of the world is where I'm Lord, where I make the rules, where I decide what right and wrong is. In the kingdom of the world, we live for self and for pleasure and for power, for what do we need to get, to get ahead. But in the kingdom of the world, death exists and pain and suffering. And it doesn't last forever. In the kingdom of God, Jesus is Lord. In the kingdom of the world, Satan is actually the, kingdom, the, the king of that kingdom. And the reality is, according to the biblical story, we're playing for one of those sides. We're on one of those teams. Now, as a Christian, I have acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we all know how that works, because sometimes the self kind of wins out. That's why the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us, I think it should be translated as most scholars I think do, deliver us from the evil one. It's not just from evil. Because sometimes we give in. We want that gratification now instead of self-denial now and eternal glory later. So we can sit back and think, you know, I'm a, I'm a good Christian, it's okay. No, we're, we are either for him or against him. And to be for him means to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. So how do I do this? Well, let's acknowledge. Number one, we're, we're, we're afraid. We're concerned. I, I, the pastor's telling me I have to go out and share the gospel, but I don't even know what to say. I, I don't know how to answer their questions. I, I don't know what to do here. Well, the first thing I'd say is this. Just start and learn one step at a time. You don't have to go out and share everything. But come back and let's, let's, let's get equipped some more. Let's find a class or a Bible study or some other group that we can get into to learn more and more and more about how to be more effective in proclaiming the gospel. But just start. Just talk to your neighbor. You don't have to tell them all about Jesus right now. Just talk to them. Build a relationship with them. Find a common ground. Find a common interest. Do that common interest together. Maybe eventually if, if there's a relationship there, invite them to dinner or, or to coffee and then to dinner. Invite them to Easter. The nice thing about Easter is it's not, you know, inviting them to church is like not easy. Ah, uh, no, no. But he, everyone's supposed to go to church on Easter. So we have these cards in the back. Pick up a card. Hey, let me tell you about, uh, about our Easter service. On the back side, it tells us about the English service at 9.30 and the Spanish service on Easter, sur on Easter Sunday at, at 6 a.m. There'll be a breakfast, by the way, at 8 a.m. And if you want to come early, for those of you who come to this service, come early and, and fellowship with our Spanish congregation. They're going to stay for breakfast, and we'll come early, and we'll fellowship together, and then we'll have our 9.30 service. Invite them. Start telling the story. I shared with you before, and I'll close with this, that I, for years, I have a brother who's not a follower of Jesus, um, uh, lives in, in Massachusetts, um, and I've been praying for years. And as, after he moved back to, back to Boston, I, Lord, send someone to him. Send someone to him. Send someone to him. Send him a co-worker. Send him somebody. Send him somebody in the grocery store. Send, send him a neighbor. Send him a landlord. Send someone to him. And then I realized, oh, what if somebody in the East Coast is praying for their sibling on the West Coast and I'm the answer to their prayer? 
What if you're the answer to somebody else's prayer? Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.